0: Hello and welcome to the Invivo podcast. I'm David Wild, pharma and biotech reporter at Invivo. Today I'm speaking with Bruce Lucher, CEO of Nervati, a Blackstone life sciences portfolio company. We're speaking about the challenges of developing treatments for rare diseases, particularly neurological diseases, since that's what the company focuses on. Um, Bruce, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here.
0: I know you're a psychiatrist by training, and in a former life, you worked as a biotech analyst at Goldman Sachs and an investment banker at Credit Suisse. Can you start off by telling us a little bit more about your career trajectory, how you got to where you are, and and what got you interested in neurological diseases?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to provide that color. It goes way back, as the case may be. So uh, growing up in the home of a brilliant clinician-scientist-neurologist— uh, I was surrounded by neuroscience in one form or another for as long as I can remember that uh, ultimately led to medical school and a residency in neurology, which I thought was fascinating. But I also thought there was a part of diseases of the brain and nervous system that weren't fully covered by neurology. So I went on and did a residency in psychiatry, all of this at Wild Cornell under the mentorship of David Silverswag. And spent quite a bit of time thinking about neural circuitry but it was a particular moment in time for drug development in neuroscience uh, this is now late 90s early 2000s where you had an explosion veritable explosion in novel therapeutics across a number of different verticals in neuroscience the atypical antipsychotics the novel antidepressants novel antiepileptics, novel ms drugs novel sleep drugs novel pain drugs it was really a deluge uh, which we all, all welcomed of course and it was a moment in time in which people wanted uh, to access the mind share of folks who lived on the scientific and clinical side of the business, which is where I was spending all my time and found it to be incredibly stimulating intellectually and a wonderful juxtaposition of managing patients while at the same time collaborating with the buy side and the sell side on financing these programs and a wonderful window into that part of how things get done, which ultimately was the classic bug bite, as they like to say, for uh, how one gets close to different industries. For me, it was all of that uh, drug development that was happening around me. And that led to a lot of collaboration with investors, with banks, uh, companies, large and small, and uh, ultimately led to me taking a position at Goldman Sachs in equity research, as you mentioned, uh, which was uh, right around the start of the financial crisis. Spent uh, uh, a tour of duty there at Goldman and then came back to uh, to while Cornell to lead the neuropsychiatry effort, um, which was uh, a terrific combination, given that I'd spent time on Wall Street of patient care and academic medicine, teaching residents and the like. Uh, but also remaining heavily engaged with folks who were investing uh, in neuroscience and those who were operating neuroscience companies. And that uh, was terrific work and ultimately led to another call from Wall Street, uh, which had me landing at Credit Suisse as a banker this time around. And it was a a really good combination of the scientific and clinical perspective married to the uh, formal work on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, and also with some of the investor dialogues that I had and scientific dialogues with SABs and the like. So I went to uh, go try my hand at banking, spent a lot of my time in neuroscience, as I did in, in equity research, writing on neuroscience, uh, this time in, on the transactional side of the business, which uh, was at a moment in time when the broader biotech markets were starting to really ascend, if not already in the midst of their ascent. And neuroscience, which had been in somewhat of a nuclear winner, Uh, in the years prior to that, had regained momentum across the board, momentum from uh, the investor side uh, and the company side, but also the strategic side, where you started to see more transactions occur. So a lot of IPO work, financing work, and M&A work at Credit Suisse, and then went to PJT Partners, uh, where I helped to found the group in healthcare, biopharma, and uh, focused on M&A for six years and did a whole lot of neuroscience work in that seat, just given the perspective and the relationships. And now here I am two years at Nirvati Neurosciences, uh, two plus years, uh, focused on the same topic, uh, which is neuroscience, with some transactional work that is key to the business model, but also now closer to patients, closer to the implementation of the technology in clinical trials, and feeling like a uh, a lucky person to be Now, in this seat, being able to aggregate all these experiences.
0: So amidst all the uh, excitement of developments in neuroscience and treatments for this area of illness, have you been finding any challenges, any kind of things holding the field back?
1: Sure. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a long, a long time coming for there to be a better way to develop neuroscience therapeutics you know, the biggest issue we contend with in this space, I would argue, are failed studies, not failed drugs, uh, where we know that we have some kind of pharmacodynamic effect, but the ways in which we're able to measure it clinically in patients in a clinical trial is historically quite challenging, arguably still a significant challenge, but we've been chipping away at some of those challenges by using complementary or adjacent enabling technologies, as I like to call it, so there's been a more significant embrace of things like uh, serological uh, plasma and CSF biomarkers, uh, neuroimaging, which has come a long way, still not quite ubiquitous in, in the development of neuros- neuroscience therapeutics, but, but it has a more prominent role, uh, perhaps seen most significantly in the Alzheimer's space, and then electrophysiologic biomarkers, where we've seen... Uh, a lot of momentum of late, these challenges, uh, these technologies, rather, uh, while they do address some of the issues, don't address all of them. And we will continue to have to chip away uh, using things like human genetics and multiomics and other strategies that help us understand who we're enrolling in these studies to drive more homogeneity and how we're evaluating those patients once they're in these studies. Uh, And the more specificity and precision we have, the better off will be. But most certainly, you know if we're look, uh, thinking historically, the the lack of precision approaches to understanding patients and assessing them in clinical studies has been uh, the biggest challenge, which is what's led to these failed studies, not failed drugs, which I do believe is something that most of us in this space generally agree on. We can see the drug having effect. Uh, we just can't necessarily demonstrate statistical significance. And there are lots of different drivers of that, all of which we're trying to optimize.
0: At Nirvati, you've developed a new business model that you think should help shore up uh, resources necessary for successful R&D and regulatory and commercialization better than existing models. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it overcomes what you think the deficiencies are of existing business models?
1: One of the big issues in neuroscience is an ability to take drugs all the way through development, recognizing that there are fits and starts associated with how the drugs perform, uh, given the complexities of rare neurology. But for that matter, even some of the larger total addressable market opportunities like depression or schizophrenia, uh, some of the larger neurodegenerative diseases, it requires a lot of commitment and it requires a long-term view. And what we've been able to do is deliver that long-term commitment and that long-term view to the partners with which we collaborate. And that's through our partnership with Black Sun Life Sciences, who is our only investor. And the genesis of our company, our model, NeuroBody Neurosciences model, is to develop uh, these therapeutics and to identify them at a moment in their development with a innovator company could be a multinational large cap, could be a mid cap, or even a, even a small cap company. Identify promising clinical opportunities, clinical programs that have delivered clinical data, and determine what kind of resources and strategies can be implemented around those programs to bring them through mid and late stage development. So our model is not one that focuses on translational medicine or preclinical uh, development, but rather identifying programs that are in the clinic with data uh, that allow us to conduct our analyses fulsomely, and then commit uh, to the long-term development of those programs through approval uh, without having to uh, solve for some of the things that privately held or publicly traded companies often contend with. Uh, capital markets risk as a publicly traded company can be significant. Financing overhang can be significant as well uh, in terms of a burden. And you know, we, we're in a position where we don't uh contend with those issues and as such can focus on the molecule what's best for patients and uh take it all the way through approval it does though require us to find uh, clinical stage molecules uh, because we live at a certain point in the life cycle of development where we're not taking on the risk of translational medicine Uh, but i I argue that that's a, a moment in time for many uh pharmaceutical and biopharma companies that Matters most where they have a program. It has uh, translated from the preclinical realm to the clinical realm, and now they're trying to figure out how to uh, uh, allocate the resources, both human and financial, to get these programs through uh, all the way through development. It's a it's a heavy lift for a number of different companies, and a short term view on how to accomplish that in mid to late stage development isn't isn't uh, easy to do. Uh, when you've got an opportunity to align with a group like ours who focuses on both financing these programs via Black Zone Life Sciences and then developing these programs through inner body Neurosciences, it, it solves for some of those problems and it puts us in a competitive position. We're not the only uh, uh, entity that adopts this view. You know, we've seen more in the way of late stage, mid to late stage Uh Uh, financing solutions and development solutions come to market over the course of the last few years, if not more. Uh, But this certainly is one model that um, we think provides a solution, really a potentially mutually beneficial solution to the companies that have innovated to a certain point in time, our ability to bring it through mid to late stage development, and then an ability to have a commercial thesis that really benefits everyone, including patients and, and caregivers.
0: And uh, if I understand correctly, you have you have one subsidiary, Grin Therapeutics. Can you tell us a bit about how that's working out, about the details of that arrangement?
1: Sure, sure. So this is an example of a, of a licensed uh, product candidate that we were able to take in from a multinational company that had made certain strategic decisions. And we had a view on the potential of this molecule in a rare neurodevelopmental disease called Grimm-related disorders. And interestingly, this, this disease was really only named in 2014. So as far as diseases go, it's it's pretty new. And, and as you might imagine, there there's a lot of nimbleness and agility that's required to uh, progress through development for a drug targeting a disease that was only named in 2014, but it's consistent with how we think about our model. So, there's a clear human genetics driver to how we think about this disease process. There's a mutation on one of the genes that encode for a receptor that is implicated uh, in in epilepsies, but also in neurodevelopmental uh, uh, diseases writ large. And we were able to to formulate a view, proprietary view, on, on that disease process by way of using the human genetics angle. And then consider the deal structure that would be most appetizing, most appealing to the licensor and to us, and put ourselves in the driver's seat where we can leverage all of the expertise that we have and not have to consider a piecemeal approach to getting through to the finish line, but rather a commitment uh, from Black Life Sciences to enable that effort. Uh, So it's, it's, um, as is often the case in neuroscience, you find large cap companies multinational mid-cap companies who are uh, paring down portfolios or making certain strategic decisions that don't represent a moral hazard on the product candidate, but rather just a referendum from the company on where they intend to deploy resources. So there is opportunity that lies within that. uh, And our objective is to go in and assess the bona fides, do a fundamental analysis of the molecule, the program, and every element of the development going forward, and then make a very well-informed, well-formulated decision on the viability of that program. In this case, for Green Therapeutics, we really resonated to the notion that we can enroll patients in this study, uh, which is a proof-of-concept study that gives us an opportunity to be quite precise. We're targeting the receptor uh, that is uh, aberrant, that is abnormal in these patients, given a dedicated genetic mutation, and we know that enrolling patients and understanding their mutation and characterizing it and then treating it is a perhaps more sophisticated way of thinking about managing a developmental epileptic encephalopathy. There are few drugs uh, that are approved today, or for that matter, even in development today, that are taking that kind of rifle shot approach at a rare neurological disease not to take anything away from the successes that have been realized in developmental, epileptic encephalopathy, there have been many of them. And we are we applaud that effort. It is helpful to all of us when, when people innovate and they do so in a way that has major impact on patients and caregivers. Our approach is in, in grid-related disorders is, is, is a bit more targeted as we like to think about it. So it, it goes after the specific physiology that we know is abnormal from a dedicated genetic mutation. To us, that's interesting. And we would also represent that as we look past GRIN-related disorders, uh, for for GRIN therapeutics in particular, but even beyond that into other opportunities we'd consider, human genetics looms large. Our ability to uh, be more precise in who we enroll, how we characterize those patients, and how we treat them probably yields more effect size on the other side of the equation more therapeutic benefit um, as opposed to an all-comers approach uh, which can sometimes create issues or problems as you know the heterogeneity of these diseases is quite different and sometimes hard uh, to prove out uh, you know material clinical impact in late stage studies uh, in an all comers context so being as as precise as we can be as many rifle shots as we can take is how we think about our business by and large, and Green Therapeutics is a perfect example of how we're implementing that.
0: And just because it's on everyone's radar, uh, AI is coming out as a way to de-risk assets and try to sharpen development. Are you looking at incorporating AI into your strategy as well? Uh,
1: The answer short answer is yes. Uh, We, you know, believe that whether it's from a drug discovery perspective, or whether it's from an ability to parse patient populations, uh, AI plays a big role. It already plays a big role. We'd argue that a lot of the work that's being done right now is being informed at a minimum, if not guided by AI. And there's so much about refinement of target engagement, uh, limiting of off-target effects, uh, uh, being more surgical, if you will, with how drugs are brought through development matters in neuroscience uh, it, where side effects matters in all therapeutic areas. I think that's fair to say, but in neuroscience, we're really looking for tolerability and safety um, in many cases. And and the more toler- tolerable and safe these drugs are, the better off we'll be. AI can enable that. I go even a step further uh, around classical AI and, and think about machine learning, those terms often being used interchangeably. There's so much about managing a patient with a chronic neurological or psychiatric disease that is informed by continuity of data collection and data synthesis. How are these patients existing between office visits? What's the natural history of their underlying disease, which may be different for a certain kind of patient with major depressive disorder versus another kind of patient with major depressive disorder? So the more that we can use non-pharmacological AI-enabled or machine learning-enabled technologies to inform the way in which we're treating patients, less about the specific molecule, perhaps, and more about the ways in which we're learning about that molecule's impact on a certain patient's disease, it's incredibly helpful. Now, I'm biased in all of this, I should disclose, because I was the founding neuropsychiatrist for a company called Click Therapeutics, which aims to do just that. So this is now dating back 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, when, uh, you know, AI and machine learning were just starting to develop significant momentum amongst the masses uh, and an appreciation that I had for the complexities associated with neuropsychiatric disease and wanting to find a way to leverage something like machine learning that would enable us to more intelligently deploy our pharmacotherapeutics, all with the eye toward increasing effect size. We know that effect size matters. It matters to payers. It matters to patients and families. It matters to physicians. Matters, of course, to drug developers and any effort that we can undertake to improve effect size of a pharmacotherapy by way of using an AI technology or machine learning technology, we believe is accretive to the overall process. Because what it does is it creates momentum, and I think if there's one thing that the neuroscience space can continue to benefit from is momentum. The more robust the effect sizes, the better tolerated uh, these medicines are, the more precise the intervention on a patient by patient basis, the more enthusiasm uh, uh, both treaters and patients have, and therefore the more continuity and the more adherence and compliance we see in these patients, which is key. So I think that the 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 pocket of AI uh, that focuses on drug discovery is critically important, as I've mentioned, in terms of more targeted therapeutics with less off-target effect. Uh, But it's also the way in which we leverage these technologies in the day-to-day treatment of patients in order to maximize the effect size of novel therapeutics.
0: Do you see any other kind of policy, regulatory, technological industry kind of initiatives in the future that might keep that momentum going and maybe grow it even more?
1: Yeah, I I do. And we've talked about a couple of them today, but it's worth reiterating that when we think about uh, neurotherapeutic development, uh, we almost always are thinking rather narrowly about the molecule, and that's appropriate. We need to think about the molecule to be sure. Uh, But the more that regulators, investigators, companies, the broader ecosystem embraces, some of these uh, enabling technologies and the more that these enabling technologies are refined, uh, the more success we will have in neurotherapeutics drug development. So I'll take as an example uh, neurophysiologic biomarkers, um, electrophysiologic biomarkers, I should say. Uh, dating back 10, 12, 15 years ago, these technologies existed. They weren't as refined as they are today, but they existed. and weren't particularly well embraced by the classical drug development community, despite those data points adding value, serving as a point of triangulation for understanding the physiology inside of the brain that you're aiming to treat. Over the last few years, call it five years or so just to pick a number, we've seen a whole lot more uh, of that embracing of this sort of technology, recognizing that much like an EKG or an ECG in cardiology can add value, an EEG or an ERP can add value in neuropsych- neuropsychiatric disease, or for that matter, fair play neurological disease. It is another data point, right? And I think that exercise of, of seeking out as many complementary data points as possible through as many novel technological platforms as possible is helpful to the cause. It does require, though, vetting. It requires guidelines. It requires regulatory buy-in. And I think we've seen that, at least incrementally, we've seen that over the course of the last five or so years, particularly on the electrophysiological side of the the ledger and the neuroimaging side of the ledger. Um, The more that we learn about the uh, genetic underpinnings of these diseases, uh, the better able we are to identify patients with genetic mutations or variants that lead to neurological disease. So, as I see The sophistication, the wave of sophistication of gene sequencing continuing to rise, that will benefit neurological disease for sure, given how much uh, monogenetic neurological diseases there are out there. So, as we take a holistic approach to uh, how one thinks about drug development in neuroscience, as I mentioned before, as it relates to the people, it requires a village. I'd argue that as it relates to the technology, it requires a village. And those circles overlap uh, because the people uh, who need to be a part of the buy-in are just as much uh, a part of the equation as the technology itself. But I do think we're moving in the right direction. There there is one, you know, uh, hot-button issue that I think we've all been talking about now for well over a year, which is the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact that that may have on drug development. I would like to see more attention paid to the impact that that may have on rare neurological diseases, many of which are treated or or, 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 or have drugs in development that are small molecule therapeutics and we know that small molecule therapeutics have drawn the short straw um, arguably all, all of the straws are short as it relates to IRA but certainly the small molecule therapeutic side has has uh, has a problem an issue with the uh, uh effectively the the length of exclusivity of of these programs and because in neuroscience you often find that uh what works for one indication has the potential at least to work for another indication of course we've seen this in the novel antidepressants novel antipsychotics novel antiepileptics, novel pain drugs you know there's plenty of examples in neuroscience drug development where you are able to position a novel therapy against a, another indication in uh, rare neurological disease drug development, we'd aim to do the same thing. Any drug developer would aim to do the same thing. If uh, the investment community sees the nine-year runway for small molecules as part of the IRA as compromising their investment thesis, that could create issues for us, and more importantly for patients and families who are really counting on us, the intimacy that, that exists between a drug developer and a patient in rare neurology or a caregiver in rare neurology is is uh exceptional and 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 necessary um and we want to deliver for those folks and and the only way to do that is to get people interested sufficiently interested in the investment thesis and you know my concern yet to be proven of course but my concern is that the punitive approach that's been that's been taken as it relates to small molecule therapeutics presents a problem that requires a solution uh, but no solution has yet been put forward. So when you ask me about where folks might focus uh, around existing persistent problems, I'd I'd argue this is one of them uh, for the betterment of, of rare neurological diseases.
0: We're all waiting to see how that plays out, the impact of the IRA on drug development. But um, was there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, we covered quite a bit, but uh, any other thoughts you had on this topic?
1: Uh, I would just um, end with a uh, biased view, but a view nonetheless, on on the importance of, of of this sort of work. You know, having spent time in different pockets of this industry, you know, broadly defined, uh, you you need thick skin in many cases in neuroscience drug development, and in, it it requires uh, perhaps different skills tolerance levels, risk tolerance levels, capital and time than many other therapeutic areas require. And, and what I'm what I'm proud about as it relates to the work we're undertaking and, and that Blackstone Life Sciences is, is supporting, is that we all share that view. We share the view that we need to have a constructive, long-term patient view around how we get these drugs to these patients perhaps more so in neuroscience than other therapeutic areas. But we all appreciate the need, and the need is profound. So any effort that we can take on to help to contribute to that solution, we are keen on doing, and we happen to believe that the solution we're offering is one that really does benefit all parties. Uh, But I thank you for your time today and enjoyed the discussion.
0: Likewise. Thanks so much for your time, Bruce. For more pharma, biotech, and medtech news and insights, visit the InVivo vivo website